Well, I'm excited to uh, turn to the Word of God with you this morning that we can uh, continue in our study in the book of Ecclesiastes, and we have some great verses ahead of us, and I'm very eager to share them with you. I've been eager all week, actually. Um, You might remember in our last examination was Ecclesiastes 5, verses 8 to 9, and that revealed the extreme oppression in society that comes by the cruel hand of tyrannical rulers and political officials in human government. And that as long as there is human government, well, the best that one under the sun who is separated from God can hope for is tyrannical government. But hey, that's at least better than anarchy, right? (laughs) And if we present the truth that way to any sane, non-Christian willing to listen, you will have to admit that the world's best is really not good at all. And if he does, well, we would point him to a better kingdom that he can enjoy even now during his days under the sun that would even make oppression, well, a moot point. It's the kingdom of God. It's, it's to... It's to, to be lived under God, it's to live rather under God's theocratic rule from heaven until Christ returns. The better kingdom, which is superlative to all kingdoms, is of course an implication of this text, since it comes in a in a larger context of the whole book that argues for an above the sun worldview. Now we move to verses ten to seventeen this morning, where the sage turns our attention to the reason behind tyrannical governmental officials. The reason for this. Generally speaking, the reason is that they are fallen, anti-God, anti-Christian. To be more specific, they're motivated by a heart full of sinful impulses, lusts, ungodly desires, ungodly passions, an insatiable hunger for wickedness. Paul actually describes these divine or or driving lusts, rather, in Romans chapter 1, and uh, They are not unique to government officials. Oh no, these wicked intentions motivate all humanity, even the oppressed of this world. They make up the nature of depravity. A sinful abandoning of God is the reason for them. And he says in Romans chapter 1 verse 24 that God judged humanity as a result by giving them over to vile impurity in the lust of the hearts. And in verse 26, God gave them over to degrading passions. And in verse 28, God gave them up to a depraved mind. Paul would later explain that these wicked intentions and motivations and lusts that are born in the heart were even once true of you and me. Oh yes, listen to Titus chapter 3. Verses 3 and 4, Paul says, We too were once enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. That's a lot of lusts and pleasures, by the way. The wonder of being born again is that salvation delivers us from enslavement to a depraved nature, from sin and its lusts, and from facing God's wrath. Now, it's true that believers are still housed in the flesh, which is the last part of our makeup that won't be redeemed, of course, until we reach heaven, and that while we're no longer slaves to sinful motivations, we can certainly give in to them if we're not careful. Oh, yes, and we, we do have to fight them off. We have to beat them down, 
make a conscious effort to walk by the Spirit. In fact, that's how Paul instructs us in Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 and 17. He says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the lusts of the flesh. For the desire of the flesh is against the Spirit, but the Spirit is against the flesh. If we're not careful, you see, to guard our hearts, which Proverbs says is the wellspring of life, and they can then we can hurt both ourselves and our neighbors. And there's a clear example of that in James chapter 4. In the first four verses, James attributes quarrels, conflicts, fighting, even hating of those in his congregation to sinful passions and pleasures that wage war in the minds. Interesting. He says, you lust, you do not have, so you hate. And you're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. There it is. Oh, it can still happen to us. Be sure of that. We, we can still get caught up in sinful passions. The only difference, the only difference between, between a believer in Jesus Christ and an unbeliever, as Jay Adams used to say a long time ago, is that believers know what to do with their sin. We repent, we change, we train ourselves in godliness. But unbelievers, unbelievers, well, they cannot do this. Now, what I told you uh, is really part of a dynamic of human nature, okay? It's part of a dynamic. Human nature is motivated by what's in the heart. That's part of a dynamic. There's another part, though, to complete this dynamic, and and it goes like this. What's in the heart that motivates behavior is nothing less than a god. A god? Yes, that's God with a small g. But please understand, to any individual, it's no less a god. What do you mean by that? Well, I, I mean an idol. Something that the individual worships. You see, not only is humanity made up of fallen individuals, those individuals are worshipers. Make no mistake, beloved, this is a true theological, um, a, a theological truth, rather. God created every single person that comes into this world as a worshiper. He created us to worship. To worship is part of the design of human nature. Everyone worships something. Christians, of course, worship God. Everyone else worships something else. We can identify it generally as the object of one's affections. And there are many idolatrous loves that fill the human heart. Each take its turn at being the primary motivation. An idolatrous object could, well, it could be anything. It could be happiness, pain-free life, just to be noticed. And the actual idol itself can be good, bad, or indifferent. Oh, sure, a vice, like drugs, is an idol. Or something neutral, like TV, or or a motorcycle, or even a good thing, like obedient children. Those are all idols if we're not careful. In any case, it becomes idolatrous when a person mistakenly believes, listen very carefully, that without it, he cannot be content in life. That's an idol. He must have it. He obsesses over it because he's preoccupied with it to the neglect of his 
responsibilities. It is all consuming. Now, a believer who nurtures a sinful lust of the flesh will certainly go outside the Bible in order to achieve uh, achieve his goal, in order to serve his idol. He has to go outside the Bible. And he will manipulate people and situations in order to get what he desperately wants. But he should want only one thing, of course, that badly, and that's Christ's pleasure and approval, which can which he can have by, uh, by obedience only. It's different, of course, with non-Christians. A totally different story altogether. They, they're fallen individuals without the indwelling Holy Spirit. They do not live by God's word, and they may follow one idolatrous passion to the extreme, or they might jump from one passion to another. But either way, either way, they'll move heaven and earth to get what they want, hurt children, betray their spouses, steal, lie, or even kill. Oh, yes. It's dangerous to get between a person and his idol, let me tell you. Know this, at any given time, there is some idol that all individuals worship at any given time. Now, in our text this morning, the sage gives us an example of one particular motivating lust. It's an all-consuming, wicked passion that drives fallen government to oppress its citizens. And it is the love of money. The love of money. Here's how I would summarize our, our passage. Life is as bad as it gets for the person who worships money instead of the true God. For he will always crave more of it, always be jealous for it, always have restless nights because of it, and surely be devastated over losing it. That's the thrust of these simple verses. I want to unpack that line by line with you that we might understand just how disastrous it is to love money to this extent, to worship money. And I've summed it up, or each of the four truths that I have taken out of this passage with a single word that might actually help us to remember them. So you you might call them characteristics of the worshiper of money. And the first characteristic is this. He's ravenous. Ravenous. Life is as bad as it gets for the person who worships money instead of the true God for lasting satisfaction, for he will never be satisfied. That's verse 10. We read that, I'm sorry, in, yes, in verse 10, the sage, the sage's blunt message to those who live under the sun is a truism that he himself no doubt witnessed time and time again throughout its life. Here it is. The one who loves money will not be satisfied with money. For one who loves abundance with its, with its income, this too is futility. So as, as hard as it is to believe, a lust for money is never satisfied, ever, ever. What, what he's talking about is a situation where somebody has money as the object of his affection. He loves it. He's obsessed with it. It becomes his idol, a god, and he worships it. Money is the sage's example of a, of, of a choice false god. It's his choice false god because money is the epitome of idols. Listen very carefully to this. Um, some of you might be wondering what I mean. What do you mean a, 
epitome of idols. Well, no matter what false god people worship, whether it's euphoria or getting high or getting drunk or the, the escape from reality for a while by means of hallucinogenic drugs, a relationship, a pain-free life, happiness, and so on, one still needs financing, right? You've got to finance their idol to some degree, and so you need money. So whether it's sex, drugs, or rock and roll, those idols are secondary to the god of riches. The god of riches. And that means that while the sage uses riches as his test, test case, whatever he says about the epitome of idols here, or this idol, goes for all idols for that matter, okay? And in, in, in any idolatrous situation, we're saying that idols make extravagant and alluring promises that they can never keep. This is the nature of idolatry. Money, of course, heads the list. It has an allure about it that keeps one coming back for more and more and more. It's like the novice gambler at the roulette wheel. He comes with $200, and in less than five minutes, he makes $2,000. He now is hooked not content to just walk away, money commands him, compels him to keep on going. You made quite a bit of money, didn't you, Joe? Feels good, doesn't it? You want to make more? You can. Keep going. And he's very, and he very well may make more, a lot more. But the odds are he'll lose it all before the night is out. It's the same story for everyone who bows the knee to money. And that's the curious thing about idols or false gods. They always make empty promises. The idolater is quite blind to this, of course, blind by his love for riches. Did you know that love is part of worship terminology? I'm sure you did. It's along with crave and want and desire and long for and pine for and lust after. But those are all worship terms. And it's obvious that the sage is using love to describe a context in which a person worships rituals, bows the knee to the almighty buck. But as as much as he loves it, he'll never be satisfied with what he has, never. Always wanting more and more. Now make no mistake, the sage says, if this person goes looking for lasting satisfaction and wealth, he will be sorely disappointed. A satisfaction that comes with riches is a fleeting one. You can understand then why the <clears throat> worshiper of money becomes ravenous, right? He develops an appetite for more. He's, <clears throat> he's allowed it to grow stronger and, and as he does, he embarks on a trajectory a logical progression, you might say, of disaster and misery. Let me prove that to you. We leave verse 10 where the person has a ravenous appetite for money, and we come to verse 11 where he becomes resentful. Resentful. That's the second characteristic. Resentful? Yes, resentful. Resentful of having to spend his money on others. Now, this only makes sense since money now becomes the most important object in his life. He's jealous for it. He not only wants to keep what he makes, he wants to increase it and protect it and insure it. He plans, makes all kinds of plans for his God, but verse 11 tells us that they are bound to be inescapable draws 
on his bank account. Oh yes, the sage, the sage's example is a is a married man with kids, so he has dependents, lots of kids. You wanted a big family, of course, if you lived in the ancient Near East. It meant that you were blessed by the gods, and you could accomplish more. Maybe a family business, many hands make make much work, and. You had many to carry on the family name and reputation, but the idol worshiper of money is not so pleased to have to support a family. Not one bit. We read, when good things increase, those who consume them increase. We might paraphrase that. As the man's wealth increases, so do his dependents. And it takes more money to feed and care for them. This money, money worshiper who's jealous for his riches eventually becomes resentful of having to spend even for a worthy cause. In fact, because of his idolatrous outlook, his family has now become a necessary evil. A be, a, a, at best, a business expense in his company of kids. And the overhead expenses for the business of child rearing is really too much for him. The sage explains the idolater's frustration. So, what's the advantage to their owners except to look at them? What advantage is it to you, O shrewd businessman, the sage asks, who sees his money flow in only to watch it flow out again into the mouths of hungry kids? Oh, it must be frustrating not to enjoy your profit, to invest, to hoard it, because you have dependents. And as ridiculous and as cruel as this sounds, it really does capture the state of the mind of those who worship money. This guy is a right miser, a resentful miser who wants to part with none of his riches. So we start with a man who develops an appetite for money to the point where he becomes ravenous which then prompts him to become jealous of his riches, so jealous that he becomes resentful of having to spend any of it, even if it's for a worthy cause. Now, as awful as that sounds, it's not the half of it. There's more ugliness to this logical progression of disaster and misery of the one who worships money in verse 12. We see that he becomes restless. Restless. This money worshiper, worshiping miser, will be characterized by restlessness in verse 12. The sleep of the laborer is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich person does not allow him to sleep. Hmm. Interesting. The sage waxed proverbial here, but I think you get the gist. He sets up a contrast in our minds that exposes just how extreme this idolater is. We see first, not a rich man, but a laborer who puts in an honest day's work. And as a result, he enjoys a sweet sleep. And it makes no difference if he's made much or little in any given day. He's put in an honest day's work. The reference to eat here is figurative for making a wage. Now, whatever he made, the idea is that It was fair compensation for his labor. There is a larger biblical principle here, by the way, that we might all benefit from. 
I'm sure it's proven true in your life, whether you were, you were ever aware that you were experiencing the fulfillment of a biblical principle. It's this. When we put in an honest day's work, no matter what it is, we're sure to have a sound sleep at the end of the day. Let me illustrate that for you. It's a Saturday, and you've spent much of the day working in your garden, after which you cut the lawn, then walk the dog, and next you you do some food shopping, and on the way home you drop off some groceries at a family's house from church who are very much in need. You then arrive home just in time to make supper for the family, clean up, enjoy some family time with the kids, and then prepare them for church the next day. You were productive, very productive, and responsible with your time. You even prayed your way through the day. That has left you exhausted, but it's a good exhaustion. The kind that results from an honest day's work, you can put your head down on the pillow and have a sound sleep. Now, this is an ironclad principle of human nature, barring any medical problems, of course. If you're idle and you waste all your time during the day, you're not going to have a good night's sleep. You'll be restless all night. It's just a proven fact. But not so for the ravenous, resentful miser. He's an, a, a chronic insomniac because of the many concerns occasioned by his riches. The sage uses the phrase full stomach to refer to the rich man's hoard. He's not only... He's not satisfied with what he has. Remember, he always wants more. He always, he's always scheming how to increase his wealth. And that's not just a daytime project, by the way. His mind is running at top speed by the time he turns in. And racing thoughts don't just quit at bedtime. No, he takes them to bed with him. He tosses and turns with money matters all night long. What if something happens to my money? What if the stock market goes down or worse, crashes? What if, the, what, if, what if my banks don't insure my money enough to make a difference? How can I make my money work better for me? Is my portfolio diversified enough? How can I work less and make more? How can I spend less and make more? And on and on it goes. And you say, well, what a way to live. This guy's a slave to money. And that's exactly the point. And it makes sense for money worshippers. Making money is really his ultimate reason for living. It's what gives him his meaning and purpose in life. He defines himself by his financial status, which is why we're not surprised by the potential for disaster that looms large for such people who live this way under the sun. This true-to-life portrait of an idolatrous rich should make sense to the wealthy person or wealthy wannabe that you have occasion to evangelize. If he's sane, if he's thinking, if he really wants to know the truth, if he's logical and not so blinded by his infatuation with money, he will have to admit that your description is true to life. You're describing a good portion of his lifestyle. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that he will change and set his affections on God in a conversion. Remember, the rich young ruler didn't, right? But he did walk away sad. Interesting. Sad. Why would he ever be sad? What Jesus exposed in him rang true, and he couldn't deny it. That's why. 
But he was not sad enough, of course, to do something about it because he loved his riches too much to jeopardize them for the sake of Christ. You have to remember, idolatry produces a ravenous desire to worship a particular object that one believes will give him or her happiness. It's therefore hard to break out of. Ask any addict. God ultimately is the one, of course, who must break through and open the idolater's eyes to the gospel truth. Idolatry is a strong passion that drives people to do even heinous things in order to serve his or her God, small g. Wow, that sounds dangerous. You might be thinking, well, it is. The sage tells us in verses 13 to 17 that it is very dangerous. He brings us to the really to the last stop of this logical progression of disaster and misery. The ravenous, resentful, restless miser has set himself up not for lasting satisfaction, but for complete ruin. And we might describe his trajectory into idolatry as ruinous, ruinous. He stands to be devastated by a total loss. What a way to live your life hanging by a a probability and maybe even a possibility. What's going on here? What is he saying? Well, what we're not saying Okay, what we're not saying is that everyone who worships money faces certain devastating um, circumstances in this life. History tells us otherwise. There are plenty of wealthy people who die wealthy. What we are saying, and what the sage is saying, is this. The one who looks to riches as his reason for living, for his ultimate satisfaction in life, will not only be disappointed since riches cannot produce lasting satisfaction, but he will be devastated the moment he loses his riches. And that comes from verse 13. There is a sickening evil which I have seen under the sun. Wealth being hoarded by its owner to his detriment. Hmm. The expression sickening evil doesn't refer to gross immorality in this context. Evil evil often does refer to immorality in the Bible. But here, in this context, it refers to a bad situation, a very bad situation. How bad? Well, we're talking about the worst-case scenario. And this that confirmed is confirmed by the adjective sickening. The Hebrew word translated sick can have a a number of different meanings. It can mean illness, which it doesn't mean here. It could also be used figurative for a a disposition, as it does in the Song of Solomon, where Solomon describes his state of mind before his beloved, his lovesick. Doesn't mean that here either. Nope. It could also mean suffering, or as an adjective, insufferable. Well, that seems to fit best. The situation in which the one who worships money finds himself really in an insufferable position. He's, he'll follow it so blindly, serve it so aggressively, 
that being suddenly separated from his uh, from his money, his worst case scenario, he would be devastated at the loss of it all. Devastated. And this happens to be the case because the miser's entire life is divined by his riches, right? He's invested everything in his lifestyle. This is who he is. He doesn't know how to be poor. And if he ever was, well, he won't do poor anymore. He draws his strength, his comfort, his identity, his confirmation from his money god. So if his god is toppled, if his idol is smashed, his whole life will fall to pieces. According to verse 14, it's because of a bad business deal that he lost his wealth and now unable to support his family. When, the, when that wealth was lost through bad business and he had fathered a son, there was nothing to support him. Now, devastation in this context takes on various aspects, okay? Various aspects. According to one website called The Conversation, people who lose their fortunes or even retirement to fraud or some bad business deal can become so severely depressed that they really stop functioning or they can become anxious. It can increase child abuse, increase domestic violence. Interesting. For others, however, it's much worse. Losing their base is the end of the line, and they simply end it all. Just last week, we heard from the news, did we not, about Gustavo Arnold, 42-year-old chief financial officer of Bed Bath & Beyond, jumped to his death from his luxurious skyscraper apartment building in New York, just days after the ailing retail business announced it was closing 150 locations. He jumped. Now this man made, okay, a salary of $775,000 a year. And in 2021, he earned more than $2.9 million, including stock awards. So what happened? All that money. Well, something illegal, so it appears. The famous chain store collapsed, you see, on the stock market on August 17th. But Arnold just happened to cash in his 42,513 shares of the company for approximately $1 million on the 16th, one day before. Hmm. Now he's, he's facing lawsuits for insider trading. Oh, well, whether this magnet couldn't stand to lose any money or exchange his luxurious lifestyle for one behind bars, who can say? But two facts are evident. He stood to lose everything he had, and he was devastated. Devastated. Others, so driven by idols, other gods... Well, they're actually able to recoup from financial devastation and get back to the hunt for lasting satisfaction. Did you know Martha Stewart, Walt Disney, George Foreman, Dorothy Hamill, and Larry King, to name a few, are among these comebacks? They lost their fortunes and they made a comeback. But for those who get back in the game, the sage has something else to say. 
The fact that they lost all the first time around should be cause enough to deter them for looking to money for lasting satisfaction, right? We've got to think logically with these people. And it's proof enough that the God of money does indeed make empty promises. They found that out the hard way. But more than this, verse 15 and the first part of verse 16 show us that such an idolatrous pursuit will set the miser up for eternal devastation. Sage says, as he came naked from his mother's womb, so he will return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. And this also is a sickening evil. Exactly as a person is born, so he will die. Now, there's something more going on here than just plain death. And I think the context of Ecclesiastes assures us of that. More worst-case scenario for the ravenous, resentful, restless miser, whether he's successful in maintaining a wealthy status or reclaims it after having lost it all once before, his worst-case scenario is death, which takes everyone, of course, will keep you from crossing over with as many prized possessions as you could possibly carry in one hand. Oh, no. So this last list of comebacks who who may have reclaimed their past glory and go on to live happily ever after, comparatively speaking, of course, still must face death and what lies after. And they will leave this world with nothing, of course, the same way they entered it. But I think the implication is, of course, understood in light of all that the sage has said up to this point and will go on to say, the implication is this, why put your money, or your trust, in something that will be of no value when you die and stand before God in judgment? Now, I bring that up because the, the, the sage already talked about judgment before. He will end on this note at the very end of the book. It's obvious he has it on his mind. And <clears throat> therefore, the sage can never talk just about death In this context, it goes beyond. We stand before God naked with nothing in our hands. And that is a very terrible and terrifying position in which to be. The miser is is very short-sighted. The way he lives is short-sighted, living for this world and not for the next. And the rest of verse 16 reiterates this context with a rhetorical question. What then is the advantage for him who labors after the wind? The word advantage is one of the key words in Ecclesiastes, as you know. You you might remember that we said it refers to lasting compensation for all one's toil under the sun. And with it, the sage asks here the more philosophical question of what possible gain Do you derive from your ravenous appetite for something like wealth that doesn't last and you can't take it with you? Well, the sage's last words on this subject is especially poignant. Worshipping money is ruinous for the idolater, not just because it promises only fleeting satisfaction, but as he says in verse 17, the worshiper of money lives mainly in unhappy circumstances that irritate him, cause him great suffering and anger. He says, 
all his life. He also eats in darkness with great irritation, sickness, and anger. Now, these are the words of the Holy Spirit, beloved. God knows what he's talking about. I don't think many realize the headaches that come with fortune. There are many unhappy circumstances that surround highly successful, highly pow- high-powered business people. In fact, I did a bit of research to see what rich people themselves are saying about their own problems that stem from their wealthy lifestyles. And here are the common denominators. Speaking from their point of view, quote, we're easy targets for lawsuits. Also, people perceive us as being cheap, because we don't always quickly offer to pay. We're charged more than others when it's discovered that we have money. We always wonder if our friends are genuine or if they just take advantage of us because of our wealth. Or if a date is interested in us for the same reasons. Our family and our friends, well, they ask us for money all the time. We wonder how we'll keep from spoiling our kids also and teach them the value of a dollar. We fear that kids could be kidnapped. People think that we have no right to complain or to be human because we're perceived as having it all. Some of us can, uh, can spend, or can neglect rather, family time because of our financial pursuits. And there is much that can affect our financial status as well. Falling real estate prices, Federal Reserve, the interest rates, stock fluctuations, global currencies. Did you know that there is a mental health, in, in the mental health industry, there, they have identified something called Sudden Wealth Syndrome. Kid you not. Sudden Wealth Syndrome. They're really good at establishing syndromes. Quote, It's not an actual psychological diagnosis. It was originally coined by therapists who work with patients who have become suddenly wealthy. Individuals with Sudden Wealth Syndrome may have acquired their wealth through a lottery win, become rich trading cryptocurrency like Bitcoin or receive a large inheritance. Many people afflicted with sudden wealth syndrome deal with an identity crisis because they transition from surviving on meager, on meager weekly, fortnightly, or monthly salary to becoming a wealthy and privileged individual, end quote. Well, whether it's old money or new money, beloved, Loving it, worshiping it, serving it, as Jesus once said, is the root of all evil. Now, our scripture reading for this morning was 1 Timothy 6, verses 3 to 10. It's a powerful passage that is strangely familiar to ours in Ecclesiastes 5, 7 to 10. But maybe not so strange after all. I mean, Both passages are the word of God. And the Apostle Paul himself, being a Hebrew of Hebrews, who wrote one, no doubt was well familiar with the other. In fact, he really summarizes our text rather well in this part of his letter. He clearly refers to an unbeliever, but one who is in the church this time, a pretender, an apostate, most likely a false teacher. Paul describes him as someone who advocates strange doctrine that disagrees with the sound words of Jesus Christ. He's conceited, 
understands nothing about scripture at all. He's driven by many different lusts. One is a sick craving for upsetting the membership with controversy. More importantly, however, is his primary craving for financial gain. He worships money. Paul says he sees godliness, actually, as a means of financial gain. How terrible is this? As a false teacher, he no doubt is skilled at tricking the body to support him in all kinds of ways. Now it's helpful, I think, that we find confirmation for our message in Ecclesiastes here in 1 Timothy 6 because Paul not only exposes non-Christians who have a ravenous appetite for for financial gain that they pursue under the guise of being pastors and Bible teachers, but he also shows us at the same time that such a lifestyle will end in disaster and that there is a better way. Their ravenous ways are obvious by the fact that they are not content to receive God's gifts. They want money and lots of it, but their passion for riches blinds them to the empty promises of this monetary idol. It neither delivers lasting gain nor prepares one to meet God. This is the implication of verse 7, for we have brought nothing into the world so we cannot take anything out of it either. Boy, so close to Ecclesiastes. Mm -hmm. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Here Paul brings in the eternal perspective to contrast it with the short-sightedness of the ravenous, resentful, restless miser. They live for the now at the expense of others. But the time will come when they leave this world for the next where their earthly wealth will have no value at all. And that is the time that matters most. Paul introduces the ruin that they face at the end of the logical progression of disaster and misery, and it's not bankruptcy, beloved. No, it is eternal condemnation. He says in verses 9 and 10, but those who want to get rich fall into temptation and in a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Ruin and destruction in this context are not limited to a life on this earth. They will experience many pains, yes, but there's something far worse that awaits. Paul references God's judgment at the end of time where money will be of no use to anyone. Now in the next section of Ecclesiastes, the sage will introduce a better way, the best way, in fact, to think and act. It is the way of the Christian. And the church cannot fail in modeling a life of devotion to Christ. It's our message to those who are in bondage to riches under the sun. Paul says it best, I think, in 1 Timothy 3, verses 17 to 19. And let these words of Paul be our closing thoughts. He says, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited, 
or to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy, instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Our Father in heaven, we are so grateful for the opportunity to spend time in your word. It's so precious to us and so timely. It washes us. It cleanses us. It gets us thinking correctly the way we ought. We pray, Lord, that, of course, none of us would be caught up in this kind of idolatry. And if so, Lord, we would have the the good sense to see and that we would repent immediately and change our direction. For we know that that to, to love money to such a degree will wind us up in disaster. For those, Lord, in our lives who are unbelievers and are convinced that money is the way to go, we pray that we will use the words of, our, of the sage in our, in our dialogue, that you will help us and bring to our remembrance these things we've studied here to help this unbeliever to see logically why his position is not only untenable, but will set him up for unbelievable disaster, not only in this life, but certainly in the life to come. We pray, Lord, that you will work through our words, the words of Scripture which you promise never to return empty, for your glory, for your honor, and for the benefit of your church. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.